Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, thanks for joining us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We're brought to you today by Plexiderm. Try Plexiderm.com. Code Martini for phenomenal savings. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the podcast as well. It's all crazy today. And two-thirds of it is related to the final Democratic debate before the Iowa caucuses. Uh, it's a busy news day. we got Putin consolidating power. We've got Trump signing phase one of the China trade deal. We've got Pelosi naming the impeachment managers and approving the articles to be sent over to the Senate. So, Jim, I know you're just your pulse is racing with all the excitement here. It's just just out of control. I was going to say we're we're, we're going through with this. Uh, that three week <laughs> delay was just just an operational pause in the military offensive, I guess, is what they'd say over at the Pentagon. All right. Well, let's talk about our first crazy martini. Uh, if you watched the debate, and if you did, I'm sorry. Uh, read the morning jolt today to find out why, if you didn't watch it, you were the big winner last night. But uh, they started off with talking about uh, Trump and Iran and what makes a good commander-in-chief and uh, a number of different aspects about that, uh, one of which was uh, this question from Wolf Blitzer to Joe Biden, because uh, one of the big issues right now is uh, – whether a president has the right to order military action outside of congressional authorization. So Blitzer asks this to Joe Biden and gets this response. The Obama-Biden administration did not ask Congress for permission multiple times when it took military action. So would the Biden doctrine be different? No, there was the authorization for the use of military force that was passed by the United States Congress, House and Senate, and signed by the president. That was the authority. It does not give authority to go into Iran. It gave authority to deal with these other issues. Nobody challenged Joe Biden on this issue. And, uh, Jim, it's a complicated issue. Uh, the president probably does need to have some latitude on this. But the uh, ongoing drone campaign, which was in a whole lot of countries other than Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, certainly took place throughout the Obama administration. I believe Al-Awlaki was killed in Yemen. And then, of course, you got a months-long operation in Libya. So uh, what do you make of Biden's response and the fact that no other Democrat on that stage, particularly the anti-war ones, uh, said anything about it? This is a good example of why I find these debates really frustrating to watch. Wherever you are on the spectrum, you can say, okay, I'm not comfortable with the president having near limitless power to launch any kind of attack that he feels is necessary to execute the war on terror. Or you can say, no, you know what? These groups are, are kind of you know, always mutating, always changing, spreading to new countries. There's not enough time to go back to Congress and basically say, mother may I. In a lot of these situations, you have a limited time to make these kind of strikes. These are dangerous terrorists. We know they want to kill Americans. You got to trust the president to do this sort of thing. I can see the merits of both arguments. That's a valid argument to have. This is a complicated situation. But I don't think it's coherent to say that the American president authorized, you know, launching a strike on Soleimani, who was funding terror groups that were killing Americans in Iraq, you know, funding terror groups, you know, that that's somehow in Iraq after there's been an authorization for the use of military force in Iraq. That that's somehow some crazy, unconstitutional, you know, oh, this is something I don't know. But it's totally fine to topple Gaddafi's regime in Libya because of the authorization for use of military force in Afghanistan or Iraq. 
you know, that, that is not a coherent position. And I think it says a great deal about both the, the audience, the people voting, the moderators, and all of Biden's rivals that nobody felt this was worth pointing out or even objecting to. Either they don't remember it or they're just not well-versed enough to make the argument. I mean, you can make the argument that on a lot of issues, uh, Bernie Sanders in particular, probably the most virulent anti-war candidate on the stage, has a lot of canned phrases, but not a lot of details on uh, what he would actually do differently. He just wants to, to shake things up. But uh, yeah, when notice when Sanders complains about you know, wars, he, both he and Biden brought up Vietnam last night, Greg. Yes. I really wanted Pete Buttigieg to say, okay, Boomer, um, <laughs> those of us who went through Bill Clinton and Dan Quayle and every, what did you do during the war? Did you dodge the draft? Did you know all this kind of stuff? Kind of look forward to the fact that eventually presidential campaigns would not focus on Vietnam. It's 2020 and candidates are still bringing up how they with their stance on the Vietnam war. Um, but again, you notice Bernie, when he's making his complaints, he never brings up Libya. Right. There's no indication that he thinks Libya was really, uh, you know, an imperial presidency and warmongering and inappropriate use of U.S. military forces, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what most people's thinking comes down to, well, if the president is of my party, I trust him. If the president is of the other party, it's a dangerous, reckless escalation. I think that's, you know, a nonsensical way to look at American politics. But in the end, that's, you know, that's how a lot of people see it, Greg. Jim, very slight correction. Both Biden and Sanders are too old to be boomers. They were born in 41 and 42, respectively. So uh, got to be post-war. I'm not saying, OK, greatest generation. <laughs> well, he's not that either. They're not that great. Because clearly he wasn't old enough to uh, to serve. So uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what you call that generation. But no, those two certainly aren't great. And uh, they're too young to be uh, boomers. That, that's, that's incredible. What they are, though, is fantastic uh, prospects for customers for Plexiderm. Uh, ah, good transition there, Thank Greg. you. Oh, you're welcome. You know, uh, and it's a new year. I don't know if those guys have set New Year's resolutions other than to maybe be the next president. But uh, a lot of times they and uh, maybe us think new year, new me. Well, maybe it's more like new year, new wrinkles, because with every passing year, we all look older. But now that's uh, all changed thanks to magic in a bottle called Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. Uh, it's like you simply turn back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is very simple. It's a clinically studied serum. It visibly eliminates your wrinkles, your crow's feet, and those bags under your eyes literally in just minutes. It's the easiest New Year's resolution you can possibly make. All you have to do is apply the serum to any problem areas under the eyes or anywhere else, and it's just a new you. And the best part is there's no surgery. There's no Botox. It's entirely natural. Simply put, you will be blown away by the results. Ring in 2020 with confidence, knowing that Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger-looking skin in just minutes. The best part is it goes on clear, so no one will even know that you're using it. Leave your under-eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Bye-bye, bags and wrinkles. Hello to the new you. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use our code MARTINI for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code MARTINI. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com, T-R-Y-P-L-E-X-A-D-E-R-M.com and use the code MARTINI at checkout triplexiderm.com code martini all right right back to the debate jim and the the one moment that i think most people are actually waiting for 
on Tuesday night came towards the end of the first hour. We got through the national security questions, and then Abby Phillip of CNN decided to bring up the issue that we talked about yesterday, and that was Elizabeth Warren suddenly remembering just weeks before the Iowa caucus that Bernie Sanders told her back in 2018 that a woman couldn't get elected president. So Abby Phillip brings this up to Bernie Sanders. Here's the question, and here's uh, a big chunk of his response. CNN reported yesterday that, and Senator Sanders, Senator Warren confirmed in a statement that in 2018, you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election. Why did you say that? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. Uh, And I don't want to waste a whole lot of time on this, because this is what Donald Trump and maybe some of the media want. Uh, Anybody knows me knows that it's incomprehensible that I would think that a woman could not be president of the United States. Go to YouTube today. There's a video of of me 30 years ago talking about how a woman could become president of the United States. In 2015, I deferred, in fact, to Senator Warren. There was a movement to draft Senator Warren to run for president. And you know what? I said, stayed back. Senator Warren decided not to run, and I did did run afterwards. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes. How could anybody in a million years not believe that a woman could become president of the United States. So notice in the question, Jim, that she didn't say, did you say this? It was, why did you say it? So she follows up, and it gets even worse for Abby Phillip. So Senator Sanders, Senator Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? Jim... There's so many different ways that this question could have been phrased to Warren. Uh, Did he actually say this? Explain what he actually said and what you heard. Where were you? What was the context? Uh, None of that. I don't know if it's because she thinks because CNN reported it, it had to be true or what happened here. What's your reaction to all this? Yeah. First of all, I think I think you, you put your finger on a very key factor here. And this is something that, uh, you know, something almost of a conflict of interest for CNN. Um, their reporting is is the heart of this. They had the initial exclusive of this. If Bernie Sanders comes out and says, I never did it. I never said it. Um, And then the question is, like to me, the the best way to put the question, you know, Senator Warren, did Bernie Sanders just lie right now? And that's a a yes or no question, right? You know, she has said that he, he made this comment. He has vehemently denied it. You know, already the question, as she phrased it to Sanders, pretty much just just basically said assumed that it had been said and that the denial was was false. Um, now, by the way, keep in mind also there's a decent amount of possibility that Bernie could have said something like, "Yeah, you know, a woman's going to have a tougher time," you know, which I think you know most people would say is not inherently sexist. It's not an attack on women. You know, it's um, his assessment of what the state of the electorate is after you know what they saw in 2016. Uh, you can argue whether it's right or wrong. I don't think you can say this is meant as some sort of, you know, uh, Bernie Bernie Sanders, you know, he man, woman, hater, or, or anything like that. Terrible handling of the question. I did not like the way Warren uh, kind of, first of all, if you're going to make this charge, and by the way, like, I think it was uh, Van Jones or, or one of the commentators on CNN basically said this was, you know, tossing a grenade into uh, Bernie Sanders' tent, so to speak. Uh, this this is a big deal. This is basically, you know, this this is not, you know, an offhand comment or something like that. She knew darn well what she was doing. 
And now for this, oh, we're we're friends. I, I have no interest in escalating. Oh, uh, you know, look, you you made the attack, right? Own it, own up to it. Don't don't uh, try to run from it now that you started something. Which, by the way, I thought this was going to be the most dramatic moment of the night, and I don't think it was all that dramatic. Uh, as I put it, in, you know, yesterday they they ultimately they you know to quote Hamilton, they threw away their shot. Uh, they got to the moment of the duel. They realized what it would mean that this is going to be, you know. Two commies enter, one commie leaves, one welcome to welcome to Thunderdome, you know, and um, you know, in the end, uh, this you know that neither one of them really wanted to go all out with this fight. Uh, Sanders could have responded, you know, with a you know, how dare you say that about me? You know, I didn't say it, and I don't understand why you'd turn on me after all these years we worked together. Like you know, he could have gone, you know, you know, really gone after her, on that, and he really didn't. And her answer was, you know, look at the women on this stage and how we've never lost a, a race. Not true, by the way. Amy Klobuchar withdrew a uh, withdrew from a race for the uh, Hennepin County prosecutor back in the '90s. You know, I'll let you decide whether that counts as a loss. But either way, she did not win every race that she was in. Um, and you know, when Elizabeth Warren's bragging about that, you know, she beat Scott Brown in Massachusetts. She keeps thinking it's a huge deal that she beat a GOP incumbent. Again, it's Scott Brown. It's Massachusetts. He won in really you know unusual circumstances the first time around. And she won re-election in 2018. Those are the only two times Elizabeth Warren's name have ever appeared on a ballot. If you're a Democrat, do you want to feel a little bit not so confident about that? Well, this way, how much did the Senate races prepare Hillary Clinton for her presidential races? <laughs> I do like uh, Bernie Sanders' uh, recommendation that folks go back and look at his YouTube comments because there's a lot of stuff from the 80s where he <laughs> talks about how wonderful the Sandinistas are in Nicaragua and Castro is in Cuba. Uh, and if you really want to get on uh, his misogynist side, I, didn't he write some stuff back in the early 70s that's really kind of nasty about uh, about women? But uh, <laughs> anyway. The- yeah. But also, can we also observe that Bernie Sanders has pretty much looked the same since like 1986? <laughs> yes, yes. Right? I mean, you know, early baldness. Early, and, and the, you know, he's saying a lot of the same stuff exactly the same way. Um, so you know, if you want the unchanging man. Who has you know not changed since when you and I were in grade school, Greg? This is your man. Well, the situation here, of course, is that Warren is trying to uh, make the argument that look, this person who just happens to be ahead of me and is potentially going to get more delegates than me in Iowa and New Hampshire, all of a sudden hates women. Well, uh, it's the of course uh, the woke culture that we're seeing here. Uh, we see it with race and the, the diversity debate over who's on the stage because everybody was white last night and now uh, Warren's playing the woman card and, and Sanders is the uh, the sexist. But uh, sometimes you just got to call this stuff out for what it is. We've done it. And another place uh, where you might hear uh, people calling it out too is the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. It's a new podcast from Radio America where they talk about uh, the issues that matter to you, everything from parenting to social media, the dangers of political correctness, the importance of marriage and men and, and, and family values. Uh, they're smart, they're funny, they're conservative, uh, and they do uh, take everything with a dash of politics. But uh, a lot of different tangents they'll go off on as well. So find out more about the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast by going to chicksontheright.com or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting platform. All right, Jim, as we head to our third crazy martini here, and some folks thinking, man, they're kind of going easy on Bernie. All right, this is your time. <laughs> 
Bernie Sanders has uh, assembled quite a uh, staff. Uh, by all accounts, uh, he's ready for whatever the weather happens to be on February 3rd in Iowa. They've got people with uh, big trucks ready to uh, drive people to the caucus sites. I'm guessing they're okay with the carbon emissions in that particular scenario. But uh, he's also got a field organizer named Kyle Jurek. And uh, Kyle Jurek's operation, wherever he was based, was infiltrated by Project Veritas. And uh, they've now got two different installments of their uh, insider uh, expose on this up. The first installment is the one we're going to look at. Um, There was also a a discussion by Kyle Jurek of the virtues of gulags. He says people were paid uh, living wages in gulags. And that's where rich people still need to go to learn about what it's like to be uh, in the working class. Uh, Also talked about how... People who resisted the revolution in Cuba were lined up and shot on the beach and how that was a good thing. More immediate to our concerns here, though, is uh, what he says is going to happen if Bernie is not only not the nominee, but not the nominee on the first ballot at the convention in Milwaukee later this year. Uh, This is in a bar or a restaurant, so the audio is a little bit tough to hear. But uh, this is Kyle Jurek of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Bernie doesn't get the nomination. Bernie goes to the second round at the DNC convention. start in Milwaukee and then when they and when the police push back on that and other cities are just so Milwaukee's going to burn, and when the police push back, it's not only Milwaukee, but all the other cities are going to burn. So, uh, Jim, uh, I assume if this was a staffer for a top-tier Republican candidate, this would probably be leading most uh, national newscasts. I haven't seen it anywhere other than social media so far. You know, Greg, in and of itself, the idea of a presidential candidate having a nutty supporter is not terribly huge news. I do think that after the uh, shooting at the GOP softball game, which was perpetuated by a guy who was a uh, adamant Bernie Sanders supporter and volunteer for his campaign, means we can't necessarily hand wave this away the way we used to. Um, I, I guess probably the, the more troubling thing is is the idea that this is, I think, not necessarily the most outlandish er- interpretation of where Bernie Sanders supporters want the country to go to. Really interesting study where the person, you know, uh, it was it was it was based on online interactions. So it wasn't a, per, you know, you, you could argue about whether this was, um, you get more honest answers from people when they're answering anonymously or whether you're getting uh, less honest answers and they take it less seriously when they're answering anonymously. But, but basically kind of measured the desire of people who want to, quote unquote, burn it all down. Uh, they basically believed that uh, the current systems in the United States had, you know, had failed them, not that they had failed themselves, not that they had failed uh, to, you know, that ultimately, you know, the system, right, with economic system, political system, cultural system, everything that makes America, uh, was there anything worth preserving? And that a significant chunk of people, like I think it came up to like you know, 30% of the electorate, all kind of had this attitude of, no, I kind of want to burn it all down and see what starts next. This is, you know, unconservative in, in every sense of the word, in the sense that, like, you don't see anything worth conserving about our con- our society. It's almost nihilist more than it's any uh, particular uh, coherent philosophy. And, I, you know, that that quote from, uh, uh, you know, The Dark Knight, uh, some people just want to see the world burn. Unsurprisingly, the two candidates who most appealed to people in this poll were Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Again, does this mean every single supporter of these guys is a, a raging maniac who wants to, you know, be an arsonist? No, not necessarily. But I, I don't think that this guy is a lone outlier amongst Bernie Sanders supporters. He certainly is traveling in a peer group where not people say, oh, good heavens, 
of course, if he loses at the at the convention, we're not burning down Milwaukee, right? There's nobody around him to say, no, that's wrong. No, we would never stand for that. I'd like to think if you asked Bernie Sanders about this, he would say, no, I wouldn't want to do this. But I'm not sure. And I kind of wonder how plausible it is that um, seemingly respectable, seemingly nonviolent, seemingly uh, you know non-radical candidates tend to attract these you know radical, hateful, uh, maniacal supporters. Um, Ron Paul used to get all this kind of stuff, and on paper, Ron Paul is this pure libertarian shouldn't be attracting racists and weirdos and and you know neo confederates and, and all that kind of stuff. But for some reason, they kept gravitating to him. And I had a hard time believing it was entirely coincidental that all these people hear a particular politician speak and say, oh, this guy's on my side. He wants to burn the country down, too. Jim, the other fascinating fact I've noticed from this Kyle Jurek character is that in one of the videos, he describes himself, get ready for this, as an anarchist communist. So let's <laughs> break that down just a little bit. Anarchist wants no government. Communist wants the government to own and run everything. So it's almost like these young radicals haven't quite thought through or even understand what they're saying. I mean, like, again, you know, they don't know what these labels mean. I, I remember a particular radio host who, who said he was libertarian. And I list, every time I listened to him, he was backing one government program after another. He was this was early Obama administration. And I kept saying, when does the libertarian part start? <laughs> And, you know, first of all, I think you're right. Some people don't simply don't know what the terms mean. But as I said, well, what he's describing there, we'll burn it down if we don't get our way. You know, that that's radical. That's that's anarchist. I, that, again, perhaps I think most actually described as nihilist. You just want to see things destroyed uh, because you're so angry at the world, I, I would suspect, about the, the conditions of your own life. And you're so terrified of the possibility that it might be your own damn fault for, you know, the fact that your life didn't turn out the way you wanted that you're eager to find anybody who can be your scapegoat. And you've concluded the biggest scapegoat you can find, which is all of society. Well, on that encouraging and cheery note. Ah, yeah. <laughs> happy, happy Wednesday, everybody. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget to visit our friends over at Plexiderm. Try Plexiderm.com, code Martini, for huge savings. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Leave us a great review over at iTunes. And join us again Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.